Section 29 of The House of the White Shadows. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The House of the White Shadows by B. L. Fargen. Section 29. Book 6, Chapters 4 through 7. Chapter 4. Monsieur Gabriel is Dismissed. I was up the whole of the night. I did not close my eyes, and when morning broke, I had schooled myself to the task before me, to assure myself of the truth and the extent of the shame. I kept watch and did not betray myself to them, and what I saw filled me with amazement at my blindness and credulity. That my wife was not guilty, that she was not faithless to me in the ordinary acceptation of the term, was no palliation of her conduct steadfastly i kept before me one unalterable resolve in the eyes of the world the name i bore should not be dishonored if by any means it could be prevented we would keep our shame and our deep unhappiness within our own walls in the light of this resolve it was impossible that i could challenge monsieur gabriel he must go unpunished by me my name should not be dragged through the mire to become a byword for pity. By degrees, upon one excuse and another, I got rid of my visitors, and there remained in the villa only I, my wife and child, and Monsieur Gabriel. Then, in Monsieur Gabriel's studio, I broke in upon the lovers and found my wife in tears. For a moment or two I gazed upon them in silence and they, who had risen in confusion when I presented myself, confronted me also in silence, waiting for the storm of anger which they expected to burst from me, an outraged husband. They were mistaken. I was outwardly calm. "'Madam,' I inquired, addressing my wife, "'may I inquire the cause of your tears?' She did not reply. Monsieur Gabriel did. Let me explain, he said, but I would not allow him to proceed. I do not need you, I said, to interpose between man and wife. I may presently have something to say to you. Till then, be silent. Again I addressed my wife and asked her why she was weeping. They are not the first tears I have shed, she replied since i entered this unhappy house i am aware of it madam i replied yet the house was not an unhappy one before you entered it honor and truth and faithfulness were its characteristics and towards no man or woman who has received hospitality within these walls has any kind of treachery been practiced by me its master and your husband tears are a sign of grief and suffering from it, as I perceive you are, I ask you why have you not sought consolation from the man whose name you bear, and whose life, since you and he first met, has had but one aim, to render you happy? You cannot comfort me, she said. Can he? I asked, pointing to Monsieur Gabriel. You insult me, she said with great dignity. I will leave you. We can speak of this in private. 
"'You will not leave me,' I said, "'and we will not speak of this in private "'until after some kind of explanation "'is afforded me from your own lips "'and the lips of your friend. "'In saying I insult you, "'there is surely a mistaken idea in your mind "'as to what is due from you to me. "'Monsieur Gabriel, whom I once called a friend, "'is here enjoying my hospitality, of which I trust he has had no reason to complain. I find you in tears by his side, and he, by his attitude, endeavoring to console you. When I ask you, in his presence, why, being in grief, you do not come to me for consolation, you reply that I cannot comfort you. Yet you were accepting comfort from him, who is not your husband. It suggests itself to me that if an insult has been passed, it has been passed upon me. I do not, however, receive it as such, for if an insult has been offered to me, Monsieur Gabriel is partly responsible for it, and it is only between equals that such an indignity can be offered. Equals! cried Monsieur Gabriel. He understood my words in the sense in which I intended them. I am certainly your equal. It has to be proved, I retorted. I used the term in so far as it affects honor and upright conduct between man and man. You can bring against me no accusations of having failed in those respects in my behavior toward you. It has to be seen whether I can, in truth, bring such an accusation against you, and if I can substantiate it by evidence which the commonest mind would not reject, you are not my equal. I see that this plain and honest reasoning disturbs you. It should not without sufficient cause. Something more. If in addition I can prove that you have violated my hospitality, you are not only my equal, but you have descended to a depth of baseness to describe which I can find no fitting terms. He grew hot at this. I decline to be present any longer, he said, at an interview conducted in such a manner. And he attempted to leave me, but I stood in his way and would not permit him to pass. From this moment, I said, I discharge myself of all duties towards you as your host. You are no longer my guest, and you will remain at this interview during my pleasure. He made another attempt to leave the room, and as he accompanied it by violence, I seized his arms and threw him to the ground. He rose and stood trembling before me. I make no excuse, madam, I said to my wife, for the turn this scene has taken. It is unseemly for men to brawl in presence of a lady, but there are occasions when of two evils the least must be chosen. Should I find myself mistaken, I shall give to Monsieur Gabriel the amplest apology he could desire. Let me recall to your mind the day on which Monsieur Gabriel first entered my gates as my guest. I brought him to you, and presented him to you as a friend whom I esteemed, and whom I wished you also to esteem. You received him as a stranger, 
and I had no reason to suspect that he and you had been intimate friends, and that you were already well known to each other. You allowed me to remain in ignorance of this fact. Was it honest? It was not honest, she replied. It made me happy, I continued, to see, after the lapse of a few days, that you found pleasure in his society, and I regarded him in the light of a brother to you. I trusted him implicitly, and although, madam, you and I have been most unhappy, I had no suspicion that there was any guilt in this, as I believed, newly formed friendship. There was no guilt in it, she said very firmly. I receive your assurance, and believe it, in the sense in which you offer it. But in my estimation, the word I use is the proper word. In the concealment from me of a fact with which you or he should have hastened to make me acquainted, in the secret confidences necessarily involved in the carrying out of such an intimacy as yours, there was treachery from wife to husband, from friend to friend, and in that treachery there was guilt. By an accident, within the past month, a knowledge has come to me of a shameful scandal which, had I not nipped it in the bud, would have brought open disgrace upon my name and house. But the secret disgrace remains, and you have brought it into my family. A shameful scandal, she exclaimed, and her white face grew whiter. Who has dared? The world has dared, madam, the world over whose tongue we have no control. The nature of the intimacy existing between you and Monsieur Gabriel, far exceeding the limits of friendship, has provoked remark and comment from many of your guests, and we who should have been the first to know it have been the last. From a lady stopping in my house, I learnt that you and Monsieur Gabriel were lovers before you and I met, that you were affianced. Madam, had you informed me of this fact, you would have spared yourself the deepest unhappiness under which any human being can suffer. For then you and I would not have been bound to each other by a tie which death alone can sever. I have, at all events, the solace which right doing sometimes sheds upon a wounded heart. That solace cannot unhappily be yours. You have erred consciously, and innocent though you proclaim yourself, you have brought shame upon yourself and me. I pity you but cannot help you further than by the action I intend to take of preventing the occurrence of a deeper shame and a deeper disgrace falling upon me. For Monsieur Gabriel, I have no feelings but those of utter abhorrence. I request him to remove himself immediately from my presence and from this house. This evening he will send for his paintings, which shall be delivered to his order. They will be placed in this summer-house. And in your presence, madam, I give Monsieur Gabriel the warning that if at any time, or under any circumstances, he intrudes himself within these walls, he will do so at his own peril. The protection which my honor, not safe in your keeping, madam, 
Needs I shall, while I live, be able to supply. This, in substance, is all that took place while my wife was with us. When she was gone, I gave instructions that Monsieur Gabriel's paintings and property should be brought to the summer-house immediately, and I informed him of my intentions regarding them and the room he had used as a study. He replied that I would have to give him a more satisfactory explanation of my conduct. I took no notice of the threat, and I carried out my resolve, which converted the study into a tomb in which my honor was buried. And on the walls of the study I caused to be inscribed the words, The Grave of Honor. On the evening of that day my wife sent for me and in the presence of Denise, our faithful servant, heard my resolve with reference to our future life, and acquainted me with her own. The gates would never again be open to friends. Our life was to be utterly secluded, and she had determined never to quit her rooms unless for exercise in the grounds at such times as I was absent from them. After tonight, she said, I will never open my lips to you, nor willingly will I ever again listen to your voice. In this interview I learned the snare set by my wife's mother into which we both had fallen. I left my wife, and our new life commenced, a life with hearts shut to love or forgiveness. But I had done my duty and would bear with strength and resignation the unmerited misfortunes with which I was visited. Not my wife's, I repeat, the fault alone. I should have been wiser, and should have known, apart from any consideration of Monsieur Gabriel, that my habits, my character, my tastes, my age, were entirely unsuitable to the fair girl I had married. I come now to the event which has rendered this record necessary. CHAPTER Five, THE THIEF IN THE NIGHT The impressions left upon me by the tragic occurrence I am about to narrate have, strangely enough, given me a confused idea as to the exact date upon which it took place, but I am correct in saying that it was within a month of the agreement entered into between my wife and myself that we should live separate lives under the same roof. I expected to receive a challenge from Monsieur Gabriel, a challenge which for the reason I have given, that I would not afford the world an opportunity of discussing my private affairs. I firmly resolved not to accept. To my surprise, no such challenge reached me, and I indulged the hope that Monsieur Gabriel had removed himself forever from us. It was not so. The night was wild and dark. The wind was sweeping round the house. The rain was falling. I had resumed my old habits, and was awake in my study in which I am now writing. I did no intelligent work during those sad days. If I forced myself to write, I invariably tore up the sheets when I read them with a clearer mind. 
my studies afforded me neither profit nor relief. The occupation which claimed me was that of brooding over the circumstances attendant upon my wooing and my marriage. Forever brooding. Walking to and fro, dwelling upon each little detail of my intimacy with my girl-wife, and revolving in my mind whether I could have prevented what had occurred, whether, if I had done this or that, I could have averted the misery in which our lives were wrapped. It was a profitless occupation, but I could not tear myself from it. There was a morbid fascination in it which held me fast. That it harrowed me, tortured me, made me smart and bleed, mattered not. It clung to me, and I to it. Thus do we hug our misery to our bosoms, and inflict upon ourselves the most intolerable sufferings. I strove to escape from it, to fix my mind upon some abstruse subject, upon some difficult study, but, like a demon to whom I had sold my soul, it would not be denied. There intruded always this one picture, the face of a baby boy, mine, my dear son, lying asleep in his mother's arms. Let me say here that I never harbored the thought of depriving my wife of this precious consolation, that never by the slightest effort have I endeavored to estrange him from her. The love he bore to me, and I thank heaven that he grew to love me, sprang from his own heart, which also must have been sorely perplexed, and have endured great pain in the estrangement that existed between his parents. Well, this pretty baby face always intruded itself. This soul, which I had brought into life, lay ever before me, weighted with myriad mysterious and strange suggestions. It might live to accomplish great and noble deeds. It might live to inspire to worthy deeds. It might become a savior of men, a patriot, an emancipator. And but for me, it would never have been. Even the supreme tribulation of his parents' lives might be productive of some great actions which would bring a blessing upon mankind. In that case, it was good to suffer. After some time, not in those days but later on, this thought became a consolation to me. Although it troubled and perplexed me to think whether the birth of a soul which was destined to shine as a star among men was altogether a matter of chance. A dark, stormy night. I created voices in the sweeping of the wind. They spoke to me in groans, in whispers, in loud shrieks. Was it fancy that inspired the wail, "'Tonight, tonight shall be your undoing!' Midnight struck. I paced to and fro listening to the voices of the wind. Presently another sound, a sound not created by my imagination, came to my ears. It was as though something heavy had fallen in the grounds. Perhaps a tree had been blown down, or did it proceed from another cause which warned me of danger? I hastened immediately into the grounds, 
the sense of danger exhilarated me. I was in a mood which courted death as a boon. Willingly would I have gone out to meet it, as a certain cure for the anguish of my soul. Thus I believe it is sometimes with soldiers, and they become heroes by force of desperation. I could see nothing. I was about to return when a moving object arrested my purpose. I sprang towards it, threw myself upon it, and in my arms I clasped the body of a man, just recovering consciousness from a physical hurt. I did not speak a word. I lifted the body in my arms, it had not yet sufficient strength to repel me, and carried it into my study. The moment the light of my lamps shone on the face of the man, I recognized him. It was Monsieur Gabriel. I laughed with savage delight as I placed him on a couch. "'You villain! You villain!' I muttered. "'Your last hour, or mine, has come. This night one or both of us shall die.' I drew my chair before the couch so that his eyes, when he opened them, should rest upon my face. He was recovering consciousness, but very slowly. "'I could kill you here,' I said aloud, "'and no man would be the wiser. But I will first have speech with you.' His eyelids quivered, opened, and we were gazing at each other face to face. The sight of me confounded him for a while, but presently he realized the position of affairs and he strove to rise. I thrust him back fiercely. "'Stay you there,' I said, "'until I learn your purpose. You have entered my house as a thief, and you have given your life into my hands. I told you, if you ever intruded yourself within these walls, that you would do so at your peril. What brought you here? Are you a would-be thief or murderer? You foul betrayer and coward! So you climb walls in the dark in pursuance of your villainous schemes. Answer me. Do you come here by appointment? And are you devil enough to strive to make me believe that a pure and misguided girl would be weak enough to throw herself into your arms? Fill up the measure of your baseness and declare as much. No, he replied, I alone am culpable. No one knew of my coming, no one suspected it. I could not rest. I interrupted him. After tonight, I said gloomily, you will rest quietly. Men such as you must be removed from the earth. You steal into my house, you thief and coward, with no regard for the fair fame of the woman you profess to love, reckless what infamy you cast upon her and of the lifelong shame you would deliberately fling upon one who has been doubly betrayed. You have not the courage to suffer in silence, but you would proclaim to all the world that you are a martyr to love, the very name of which becomes degraded when you placed in association with natures like yours. You belong to the class of miserable sentimentalists 
who bring ruin upon the unhappy women whom they entangle with their maudlin theories. Mischief enough have you accomplished. This night will put an end to your power to work further ill. What do you intend to do with me? he asked. I intend to kill you, I replied, not in cold blood, not as a murderer, but as an avenger. Stand up. He obeyed me. His fall had stunned him for a time. He was not otherwise injured. "'I will take no advantage of you,' I said. "'Here is wine to give you false courage. Drink, and prepare yourself for what is to come. As surely as you have delivered yourself into my hands, so surely shall you die.'" Chapter Six the hidden crime he drank the wine not wisely or temperately as a cool-headed man whose life was at stake would have done but hastily feverishly and with an air of desperation you are a good fencer i said the best among all the friends who visited me during the days of your treachery you were proud of showing your skill as you were of exhibiting every admirable quality with which you are gifted. Something of the mountebank in this. At least, he said, rallying his courage, do not insult me. Why not? Have you not outraged what is most honorable and sacred? Here are rapiers ready to our hands. A duel, he cried, here and now? Yes, I replied, a duel, here and now. There is no fear of interruption. The sound of clashing steel will not fall upon other ears than ours. It will not be a fair combat, he said. You are no match for me with the rapier. Let me depart. Do not compel me to become your murderer. You will never more set foot outside these walls, I said. Here you will find your grave. It was my firm belief. I saw him already lying dead at my feet. If I should kill you, he said, how shall I escape? As best you may, I replied. You are an adept at climbing walls. If you kill me... What happens to you thereafter is scarcely likely to interest me. But do not allow that thought to trouble you. What will take place tonight is ordained. I began to move the furniture from the center of the room so as to afford a clear space for the duel. The tone in which he next spoke convinced me that I had impressed him. Indeed, my words were uttered with the certainty of conviction and a fear stole upon him that he had come to his death. "'I will not fight with you,' he said. "'The duel you propose is barbarous, and I decline to meet you unless witnesses are present.' "'So that we may openly involve the fair name of a lady in our quarrel?' I retorted quietly. "'No, that will not be.' Before witnesses, it is I who would decline to meet you. Are you a coward? 
"'It matters little what you call me,' he said, "'as no other person is near. "'You cannot force me to fight you.' "'I think I can,' I said, "'and I struck him in the face "'and proceeded with my work. "'My back was towards him. "'A loaded gun was hanging on the wall. "'Unperceived by me, "'he unslung it and fired at me. I did not know whether I was hit or not. Maddened by the cowardly act, I turned, and lifting him in the air, dashed him to the ground. His head struck against one of the legs of my writing-table. He groaned but once, and then lay perfectly still. It was the work of a moment, and the end had come. He lay dead before me. I had no feeling of pity for him, and I was neither startled nor deeply moved. His punishment was a just punishment, and my honor was safe from the babble of idle and malicious tongues. All that developed upon me now was to keep the events of this night from the knowledge of men. There was, however, one danger. A gun had been fired. The sound might have aroused my wife or some of the servants, in which case an explanation would have to be given. At any moment they might appear. What lay on the floor must not be seen by other eyes than mine. I dragged a cloth from a table and threw it over the body, and with as little noise as possible swiftly replaced the furniture in its original position. Then I sat on my chair and waited. For a few minutes I was in a state of great agitation, but after I had sat for an hour without being disturbed, I knew that my secret was safe. I removed the cloth from the face of the dead man and gazed at it. Strange to say, the features wore an expression of peacefulness. Death must have been instantaneous. Gradually, as I gazed upon the form of the man I had killed, the selfish contemplation in which I had been engaged during the last hour of suspense, a contemplation devoted solely to a consideration of the consequences of discovery, so far as I was concerned, and in which the fate of the dead man formed no part, became merged in the contemplation of the act itself apart from its earthly consequences. I had taken a human life. I, whose nature had been proverbial humane, was, in a direct sense of the word, a murderer. That the deed was done in a moment of passion was no excuse. A man is responsible for his acts. The blood I had shed shone in my eyes. What hopes, what yearnings, what ambitions! were here destroyed by me. For, setting aside the unhappy sentiment which had conducted events to this end, Monsieur Gabriel was a man of genius, of whose career high expectations had been formed. I had not only destroyed a human being, I had destroyed art. Would it have been better had I allowed myself to be killed? Were death preferable to a life weighed down by a crime such as mine? 
For a short time these reflections had sway over me, but presently I steadily argued them down. I would not allow them to unman me. This coward and traitor had met a just doom. What remained for me now to do was to complete the concealment. The body must be hidden. After tonight, unless chance or the hand of providence led to its discovery, the lifeless clay at my feet must never more be seen. There was a part of my grounds, seldom, if ever, intruded upon by the servants, that portion in which, for the gratification of my wife, I had at the time of our marriage commenced improvements which had never been completed. There it was that my wife's mother had met with the accident which resulted in her death. I thought of a pit deep enough for the concealment of the bodies of fifty men. Into this pit I would throw the body of Monsieur Gabriel, and would cover it with earth and stones. The task accomplished, there would be little fear of discovery. First satisfying myself that all was quiet and still in the villa, and that I was not being watched, I raised the body of Monsieur Gabriel in my arms. As I did so, a horror and loathing of myself took possession of me. I shuddered in disgust. The work I was performing seemed to be the work of a butcher. However, what I resolved to do was done. In the dead of night, with darkness surrounding me, with the rain beating upon me, and the accusing wind shrieking in my ears, I consigned to its last resting place the body of the man I had killed. Years have passed since that night. My name has not been dragged into the light for scandal-mongers to make sport of. Open shame and derision have been avoided, but at what a price! From the day following that upon which I forbade Monsieur Gabriel my house, not a single word was exchanged between my wife and myself. She sent for me before she died, but she knew she would be dead before I arrived. A fearful gloom settled upon our lives, and will cover me to my last hour. This domestic estrangement, this mystery of silence between those whom he grew to love and honor weighed heavily upon my son christian his child's soul must have suffered much and at times i have fancied i see in him the germs of a combination of sweetness and weakness which may lead to suffering but suffer as he may if honor be his guide i am content I shall not live to see him as a man. My days are numbered. In the time to come, in the light of a purer existence, I may learn whether the deed I have done is or is not a crime. But one thing is clear to me. Had it not been for my folly, shame would not have threatened me, misery would not have attended me, and I should not have taken a human life. The misery and the shame did not affect me alone. They waited upon a young life and blighted its promise. It is I who am culpable, 
I who am responsible for what has occurred. It is impossible, without courting unhappiness, to divert the currents of being from their natural channels. Youth needs youth, is attracted to youth, seeks youth, as flowers seek the sun. Roses do not grow in ice. Mine, then, the sin, a sin too late to expiate. I would have my son marry when he is young, as in the course of nature he will love when he is young. It is the happier fate, because it is in accordance with natural laws. If he into whose hands these pages may fall can discern a lesson applicable to himself in the events I have recorded, let him profit by them. If the circumstances of his life in any way resemble mine, I warn him to bear with wisdom and patience the penalty he has brought upon himself, and not to add, in the person of another being to whom he is bound, and who is bound to him, to an unhappiness, most probably a secret unhappiness, of his own creating. And I ask him to consider well whether any good purpose will be served by dragging into the open day the particulars of a crime, the publishing of which cannot injure the dead or benefit the living. It cannot afford him any consolation to think, if my son be alive, that needless suffering will be brought to the door of the innocent. Let him, then, be merciful and pitiful. CHAPTER Seven, FALSE WIFE, FALSE FRIEND Thus abruptly the record closed. To the last written page there were several added, as though the writer had more to say, and intended to say it. But the pages were blank. The intention, if intention there were, had never been carried out. The reading of the record occupied the advocate over an hour, and when he had finished he sat gazing upon the manuscript. For a quarter of an hour he did not move. Then he rose, not quickly as one would rise who was stirred by a sudden impulse, but slowly, with the air of a man who found a difficulty in arranging his thoughts. With uneven steps he paced the study to and fro, to and fro, pausing occasionally to handle in an aimless way a rare vase which he turned about in his hands and gazed at with vacant eyes. Occasionally, also, he paused before the manuscript and searched in its pages for words which his memory had not correctly retained. He did this with a consciousness which forced itself upon him and which he vainly strove to ignore, that what he sought was applicable to himself. It was not compassion, it was not tenderness, it was not horror that moved him thus strangely, for he was a man who had been but rarely, if ever, moved as he was at the present time. It was the curious and disquieting associations between the dead man who had written and the living man who had read the record. And yet, although he could, if he had chosen, 
have reasoned this out and have placed it mentally before him in parallel lines his only distinct thought was to avoid the comparison that he was unsuccessful in this did not tend to compose him upon a bracket lay a bronze the model of a woman's hand from the life a beautiful hand slender but shapely it reminded him of his wife he took it from the bracket and examined it and after a little while thus passed the words came involuntarily from his lips perfect but cold the spoken words annoyed him they were the evidence of a lack of self-control he replaced the bronze hastily and when he passed it again would not look at it suddenly he left the study and went towards his wife's rooms he had not proceeded more than half a dozen yards before his purpose whatever it might have been was relinquished as swiftly as it had been formed he retraced his steps and lingered irresolutely at the door of the study with an impatient movement of his head it was the action of a man who wrestled with thoughts as he would have done with a palpable being he once more proceeded in the direction of his wife's apartments at the commencement of the passage which led to the study was a lobby opening from the principal entrance a noble staircase in the center of the lobby led to the rooms occupied by christian almer and pierre lamont on the same floor as the study beyond the staircase were his wife's boudoir and private rooms this part of the house was but dimly lighted one rose lamp only was alight on the landing above where the staircase terminated three lamps in a cluster were burning and shed a soft and clear light around when he reached the lobby and was about to pass the staircase the advocate's progress was arrested by the sound of voices which fell upon his ears these voices proceeded from the top of the staircase he looked up and saw standing close together his wife and christian almer instinctively he retreated into the deeper shadows and stood there in silence with his eyes fixed upon the figures above him his wife's hand was resting on almer's shoulder and her fingers occasionally touched his hair she was speaking almost in a whisper and her face was bright and animated almer was replying to her in monosyllables and even in the midst of the torture of this discovery the advocate observed that the face of his friend wore a troubled expression the advocate remembered that his wife had wished him good night before ten o'clock and that when he made the observation that she was retiring early she replied that she was so overpowered with fatigue that she could not keep her eyes open one minute longer and here nearly two hours after this statement he found her conversing clandestinely with his friend in undisguised gaiety of spirits never had he seen her look so happy 
there was a tender expression in her eyes as she gazed upon christian almer which she had never bestowed upon him from the first days of their courtship a grave dignified courtship in which each was studiously kind and courteous to the other a courtship without romance in which there was no spring a bitter smile rested upon his lips as this remembrance impressed itself significantly upon him he watched and waited motionless as a statue midnight struck and still the couple on the staircase lingered presently however and manifestly on almer's urging adelaide consented to leave him smilingly she offered him her hand and held his for a longer time than friendship warranted they parted he ascending to his room she descending to hers when she was at the foot of the staircase she looked up and threw a kiss to almer and her face with the light of the rose lamp upon it was inexpressibly beautiful the next minute the advocate was alone he listened for the shutting of the chamber doors. So softly was this done, both by his friend and his wife, that it was difficult to catch the faint sound. He smiled again, a bitter smile of confirmation. It was in his legal mind a fatal item of evidence against them. Slowly he returned to his study, and the first act of which he was conscious was that of standing on a certain spot and saying audibly as he looked down it was here monsieur gabriel fell he knelt upon the carpet and thought that on the boards beneath even at this distance of time stains of blood might be discerned the blood of a treacherous friend it was impossible for him to control the working of his mind impossible to dwell upon the train of thought it was necessary he should follow out before he could decide upon a line of action. One o'clock, two o'clock struck, and he was still in this condition. All he could think of was the fate of Monsieur Gabriel, and over and over again he muttered, It was here he fell. It was here he fell there was a harmony in the storm which raged without the peals of thunder the lightning flashing through the windows were in consonance with his mood he knew that he was standing on the brink of a fatal precipice which would be best he asked mentally of himself that lightning should destroy three beings in this unhappy house or that the routine of a nine days wonder should be allowed to take its course all that is wanting to complete the wreck would be some evidence to damn me in connection with gautran and the unhappy girl he foully murdered as if in answer to his thought he heard a distinct tapping on one of his study windows he hailed it with eagerness anything in the shape of action was welcome to him he stepped to the window and drawing up the blind saw darkly the form of a man without 
"'Whom do you seek?' he asked. "'You,' was the answer. "'Your mission must be an urgent one,' said the advocate, throwing up the window. "'Is it murder or robbery?' "'Neither. Something of far greater importance.' "'Concerning me?' "'Most vitally concerning you.' "'Indeed. Then I should welcome you.' With strange recklessness he held out his hand to assist his visitor into the room. The man accepted the assistance, and climbing over the window-sill, sprang into the study. He was bloody, and splashed from head to foot with mud. "'Have you a name?' inquired the advocate. "'Naturally.' "'Favor me with it.' "'John Van Brew.' End of Book Six End of Section 29